Welcome back to the program. Understanding history can be a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it is imperative that we understand the forces that have shaped nations and peoples. On the other hand, often when the present sits in judgment of the past, the future can be lost. In short, how can we understand the shared narrative of the past while dispelling the myths and embracing a kind of proactive historical consciousness? Nowhere is this more true than in Russia and the nations of the former Soviet Union. It's a place where the effort to reach escape velocity from the past seems forever limited by the gravitational pull of history. A history, in fact, we're just coming to fully understand and embrace. Helping us do that is my guest, Orlando Feiges. He's the author of numerous books on Russia, including A People's Tragedy, The Whispers, and The Crimean War. His works have been translated into more than 27 languages. He's a professor of history at Brickbeck University of London. He's the winner of numerous literary prizes. And it is my pleasure to welcome Orlando Figes to this program to talk about his latest work, Revolutionary Russia, 1891 to 1991. Orlando, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you here. I want to talk first about this general proposition that when we think about the Russian Revolution, it's not just something that took place from 1917 to 1921 or 1924, but it is much larger in terms of the context and the influence. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, since it's about 20 years now since the collapse of communism, even more, it did seem like a good opportunity to look at it in that longer perspective in order to understand fully its consequences and legacies, legacies which you've suggested we're still living with today in many ways. As you said, so many historians have looked at it as sort of the the processes that came out of the First World War, erupted in 1917, and then dissipated into the consolidation of a dictatorial regime under Lenin and then Stalin. But my point really is that we need to see the revolution as a, as a longer cycle that does last about 100 years. Um, I started in 1891 with a famine crisis, which I think brings about the first sort of signs of a revolutionary crisis with the Russian intelligentsia and society generally mobilizing politically against the Tsarist monarchy. And doesn't really end until 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet system, because you know, even after Lenin, even after Stalin, all the leaders of the Soviet system saw themselves still in one form or another as revolutionaries and as continuing the revolution Lenin had begun. And what is it in the sense of history in Russia that has allowed these cycles to continue generation after generation after generation? That's a fascinating issue. I think... We have to bear in mind that that first generation, which I associate with the old Bolsheviks, Marxists from the European tradition who tried to apply Marxist ideas in Russia uh, to grapple with the issues of backwardness and modernization, and then who were able to sort of forge a revolution onto society traumatized by the ravages of the First World War from which the violence of their own revolution emerged. That first generation, because of all that destruction, was able, in a sense, to operate on a sort of tabula rasa to um, begin a new civilization as they saw it, so that as so many of the older generation were wiped out by natural death, by war, and then by terror, um, 
the younger generation that came of age in that early Soviet period had little else in terms of their value systems to question the Soviet system. And then society became atomized by those tremors of terror so that the links of civil society, which we might think of as um, at least a break on revolutionary impulses, were, were broken up. And as a result of that, by the 1930s and 40s, you, you have very little civil organization, you have very little capacity in society to resist the Soviet regime. And then it all becomes sort of legitimized by the great sacrifice and victory of, of, of the Soviet Union in the Great Patriotic War. And that only serves to consolidate that sort of second generation that I associate with Stalin, the generation of people born from poverty but associating their own progress through school and industry with the trajectory of the revolution through modernization and industrialization and coming into power as a result of the decline of that old Bolshevik generation in the 1930s. And the war consolidates their, their hold on society. And, and it, it means in a way that so many people, even though they have suffered terribly, even though their families may have been repressed, they identify in some ways with the Soviet system because of the progress that has been brought about, perhaps progress, um, perhaps progress made to seem greater than it actually was by propaganda. And perhaps they associate, you know, with the system in ways they might not do otherwise because they want their sacrifice in the five-year plans of the 1930s or in the suffering of the people during the war to have meant something. So they take pride in the Soviet victory of 1945. There's always this sense, as you talk about it, of this look back. I mean, as you talk about the third kind of cycle of this revolution around Khrushchev's time and looking back to the 1917 period, and even today looking back to a period in the 1950s and 1960s. Talk about that. Yeah, well, as you say, I mean, I, I do try to chart this 100-year cycle in terms of three generations, and if the old Bolsheviks were the first replaced by a new wave of revolutionaries under Stalin in the 1930s constituting the second generation, then, as you say, I think Khrushchev's secret speech denouncing the cult of personality, as he put it, but uh, the crimes of Stalin as we understand it in 1956, that created a sort of third generational wave of people like Gorbachev in 1956, a uh, you know newly graduated from Moscow University as a law student and inspired by Khrushchev's speech to think that the revolution could be renewed by Leninist principles, and that was something he tried then after Khrushchev's failure to uh, return to with Glasnost and Perestroika. But at the same time, the younger generation, the Soviet baby boomers, if you like, of the 1950s and 60s, were increasingly disenchanted by the language of the Soviet system. They were too young to remember the Great Patriotic War, obviously, um, as adults, and the Great October Socialist Revolution of 1917 meant very little to them. So their interests, every study of the time suggested, were much more materially inclined, and 
So the revolution, communism, even the new party program of 1961 promises to deliver to them economically. And of course, as we know, in the longer run, that becomes impossible as the economy goes into terminal decline. But what I think that does suggest in some ways is that perhaps any revolution is unable to sustain itself for three generations that um you know to inculcate in the values of a revolution already 50 years old by the late 1960s to inculcate in the values of that revolution a generation too young to sort of relate to it in any meaningful way becomes increasingly difficult and in that sense the revolution sort of runs adrift for lack of energy, people cease to believe in it, to some extent the leaders themselves cease to believe in it themselves. What is it then within this historical context that motivated Gorbachev to take the chances that he did that ultimately led to the Soviet Union collapse? What a great question. Ultimately, I think belief, Leninist belief in the possibilities of the revolution, in the possibilities of correcting the mistakes of the revolution by returning to Leninist principles. And in that sense, looking at the revolution in a sort of the long durée, in, in, in a longer historical arc, helps us to understand how revolutionary Gorbachev was. It was because he saw himself continuing the revolution of 1917. It was because he sincerely believed that Lenin's maxims still had relevance to Soviet society in the 1980s, that he launched into Glasnost and Pidistroika. Of course, that was um, a very steep curve of learning he had to undergo that you know, the realization that actually Lenin's principles couldn't make this system work. The system was essentially kaput. But it, it nonetheless shows how Gorbachev's own revolutionary idealism uh, was, was absolutely crucial in this, in this turning point of the 1980s. And I think it is important to underline that the Soviet system at that stage, 1985, you know, it could have gone on for longer. Um, they could have just soldiered on with a de slowly declining economy, using oil revenues to prop up uh, the consumer expectations of, of, of the population. But it was because Gorbachev believed in the system that he launched the reform program. And of course, as we all know now, that, that meant that the uh, political system unraveled, the authority of the regime collapsed as Glasnost enabled people to question the moral foundations, the historical foundations of the civilization in which they were living. The other thread that runs through this is the takeover of Eastern Europe in 1945, the reasons for that, and the way that helped the unraveling in the mid-1980s. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I see, I've, I see the um, Cold War as a continuation, if you like, of the international civil war, which Lenin and the Bolsheviks launched with the seizure of power in October 1917. They did hold very firmly to the idea that the Russian Revolution was the beginning only of a global revolution. And then when the opportunity came by signing the pact with Hitler in 1939, Stalin and, uh, and his henchmen did believe strongly in using war for revolutionary purposes. So first in the invasion of the Baltic lands and 
uh, Western Ukraine in 1939-40, and then again, obviously, with the Red Army swooping across Eastern Europe from 1944. These were conceived by the Kremlin as military maneuvers to unleash revolutionary wars against the bourgeoisie, against civil society, in the minimum program, obviously, to protect the Soviet Union against the West in the ensuing Cold War. But I think it ultimately, because they believe that this could be the springboard to the global revolution that the Bolsheviks had already dreamed of. But of course, as Stalin himself said, you know, trying to impose communism on Eastern Europe is like trying to saddle a cow. And it didn't work in Eastern Europe for reasons we now know very well. And from the very beginning, there was resistance from countries that just felt they didn't want to be part of the Russian Empire, that res resented the Russification of their cultures, the planned economy, the command economy to which they were subjected, and which had never really experienced communism in the way that, um, uh, and had strong civil societies from the interwar period themselves. So the unraveling of the system f from the 1980s begins, if you like, from the outer Soviet empire, begins in Poland, begins in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia, and then that in turn leads to the unraveling of the system within the Soviet Union itself. And now, of course, today in Ukraine, we're seeing the direct consequences of that unraveling, both internally to Russia and its sense of itself as the inheritor of the former Soviet Union, uh, but also geopolitically in terms of Russia's sense of itself as a superpower with um, a zone of interest, a sphere of interest, which it sees as legitimate within the former Soviet satellite states. What might have played out differently if the West had acted differently in 1990-1991? Yeah, I think the West did make a number of big mistakes in 1991. In the early 1990s with the privatization program in particular, I think there was an expectation that Russia would become a Western democracy. It, there was a sense that Russia might be the most successful of all the former communist states. And those who knew Russia were quite skeptical of this and also rather wary of the speed with which the privatization program was pushed through. And in a period of hyperinflation, selling off vouchers uh, to ordinary citizens in former state industries was not the best way to create a property-owning democracy because most of those vouchers were sold off for little more than the price of a bottle of vodka and ended up in the hands of the oligarchs. And that then was consolidated in that 1996 election in which, terrified of the possibility of a communist victory, the Yeltsin government was bankrolled and then um, the policy of uh, sh uh, shares for loans in state uh, enterprises did consolidate an oligarchic class. And that was a disaster for Russia politically. It was a disaster for Russian society because it sort of saddled Russia with this sense that both capitalism and democracy were very bad news indeed. And most people have lost out from it. Obviously, under Putin, the economy is revived slightly, things are slightly different, but it's still a very fragile 
uh, political and economic system dependent so heavily as it is on gas and oil. One of the things that seems to also be a part of this revolutionary cycle is this acceptance of state violence. Talk about Mm. that. Yeah, that is something I tried to confront in the last chapter, which I called judgment. I was interested in what sort of judgment one could make on this 100-year cycle. And obviously, the sort of uh, legal judgment that many in the West wanted, Yeltsin's government itself tried to pursue by enacting some sort of Russian Nuremberg with prosecution of communist officials, would have been a great mistake. It might well have led to civil war in Russia. Who was really to take responsibility? They wanted Gorbachev to go into the dock. Gorbachev himself said, well, actually, all the people responsible are now dead. It would have torn apart Russian society because everybody was so complicit in the system. If you're born in the system, grow up in it, make your career in it, have families in the system, if you're a teacher or a doctor, you've collaborated in the system. So where is the line of responsibility to be drawn? You might also have had some sort of truth and reconciliation hearings, as there were in South Africa. But again, this is a, is a problem. I mean, I think maybe that would have been a good idea in order to sort of continue the um, the the processes of glasnost and get Russian society to face up to what had happened in its name for 70 years. But again, it would have been hugely divisive and problematic because of the same reasons. Um, who is to blame for the Russian Revolution? Um, in the Baltic states, in Georgia or the Caucasian states, You can blame the Russian Revolution on the Russians. You can say it was an invasion. But in Russia itself, who is to blame? Everybody was involved in the system for many, many years. So for that reason, the the sort of revelations of Glasnost were very painful for Russians to, to deal with. And many Russians felt uncomfortable with the sort of idea of Western historians in particular lecturing them about how bad their history was. And that meant that all the consequences of that, in a sense, became bottled up in in the Russian population. And there was a resentment of the West. And there was a contradiction between what they were being told now about how bad Russian history was and what they understood from their own education, which is to take pride in Soviet history. And that Putin has built on. But Returning to your question, the alarming aspect of this is how little the attitudes of uh, the Soviet system have been eradicated from the Russian population. And there were, for example, a whole series of um, TV shows in 2011, uh, Judgment on History, in which they would discuss uh, collectivization or um, industrialization in Stalin's model and so on and ask people to vote on it and in each case it seemed about 90% of the viewers felt that the policies pursued by Stalin had been correct that um, 
even though they knew collectivization had killed millions, it was still, they thought, necessary for the uh, creation of a modern Soviet society. The most alarming of these polls uh, was carried out in three Russian cities in 2009, and they asked people what they thought of the Cheka, the founding organization of the KGB, and they found that two-thirds of the respondents thought that the Cheka had defended civil liberties, defended society rightly. Then they said, well, do you know how many people died at the hands of the Cheka and the KGB? And uh, virtually everybody who had answered this way said yes. They accepted that between 10 and 30 million people innocently had been killed. And yet at the same time they accepted that the Cheka was necessary and had done good work. Well, this is, I'm afraid, some sort of pathology, the acceptance that violence can be carried out against innocent people to defend the state or to further the revolution. And so in that way, I think some sort of truth and reconciliation hearings, some sort of continuation of the discussion, painful though it is, of Russian and Soviet history, would have been a good thing and is still necessary for Russia if it is to confront all of these painful legacies of a of hundred years of revolutionary history. When one looks at the way Putin came to power, the way he consolidated power, talk a little bit about that in the context of what we've been saying here. Well, I think it, you know, the way Putin came to power is steeped in mystery. Clearly, he was lined up by Berezovsky and other oligarchs with the um, agreement of Yeltsin, who was terrified of prosecutions for corruption in the late 1990s. And then Putin consolidated his power through the Chechen wars. And then, clearly, what happens after that, as he builds up his authoritarian regime, is that Yeltsin begins to adopt a rhetoric of Russian nationalism. And part of that is the acceptance of the Soviet legacy. He begins to talk about the need to take pride in Soviet history. He, he restores um, elements of the Soviet national anthem. He reassures pensioners that they won't remove Lenin from the mausoleum. He talks about Stalin as a great leader, even as a manager of the Soviet economy, rather than a mass killer, which is how most people objectively might see him. And all of this adds up to the message for the Russians as Putin himself once explicitly put it, you don't have to feel bad about your history. You can take pride in your history. Sure, Russia made some mistakes under Stalin, but they're nothing compared with the mistakes that America made in the Vietnam War or the West made in dropping the bombs uh, on Hiroshima and so on. Um, so Russia, he says including its Soviet legacy, has a lot to take pride in. And of course, for a population that felt so uneasy for so long about the imposition of Western capitalist norms and values, and which re resented in many ways the lecturing they received from the West, including the lecturing about Russian history being so bad, all of that was a very welcome message. And it consolidates his position and 
it's important to his position because the more the West now over Ukraine isolates Russia or threatens Russia with sanctions, the more it will play into Putin's hands by enabling him to paint the West as a, as a hostile enemy and to draw on that capital that the revolution built up for so long, the capital of, of we are a fortress society surrounded by enemies and we must take pride in our own history and we must be prepared for further sacrifice. And finally, how many generations will it take before this revolutionary project perhaps comes to an end? Great question. I'm not sure that the legacies of the Soviet system politically, by which I mean the Putin system, will dissipate soon or very easily. I am also not optimistic that the mentalities of the Soviet system will dissipate quickly in the population. They seem in a way to be reborn in a new generation of Russian Putin supporters, people like the Nashi groups, or others more generally who accept Putin as, as a leader because he provides Russia with great power status and themselves with security. But I think that Russia, once it gets over this uh, hump, if it does, is inevitably bound to develop as an economy in a way that will create a bigger middle class as it is already doing so. And that middle class will become increasingly impatient with the corruption and authoritarianism of the system as it exists now. And I think it also means that they will uh, take their values more um, from the West and it means that they will begin to think things through and perhaps one day as a result of all of that there will be the backlash against uh, this revolutionary legacy. You know in Germany after the Nazi regime it took a generation or two for Germans really to sort of face up to their history and so I don't think we can expect the Russians to do so quickly but I think maybe in another generation there will be younger people more western oriented more international in their perspective better educated more able to read foreign literature less inclined to swallow Kremlin propaganda and they will begin to question the system and their own history in ways that can only be positive. Orlando Figes, the book is Revolutionary Russia, 1891 to 1991, A History. It's just out from Metropolitan Books. Orlando, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a great pleasure and thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 